Welcome to the Doctority Plastic Surgery Podcast. My name is Jenna, and in this series, I'll be speaking to plastic surgery residents and giving you an inside look at what it's like to train at their institution. We'll discuss the logistics, the leadership, and the lifestyle of a plastics resident at their program. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Doug Dembinski, who's a fourth-year resident at the University of Cincinnati in Cincinnati, Ohio. Doug is originally from Columbus, Ohio. He completed college and medical school at the University of Cincinnati. His interests include microsurgery and breast reconstruction. Doug, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jenna. I love that you're putting this on for all of the programs in the country. This is, this is awesome. Thanks so much. Then thanks for being here. So I'd love to get started by hearing kind of a broad overview about your program. Absolutely. For those of you that don't know, Cincinnati is a, a large uh, Midwestern city. We are located on the corner of Ohio, Kentucky, and Indiana in what we lovingly call the tri-state area. The program itself takes one integrated and one independent resident a year, so there's nine of us total. And we have currently five full-time adult faculty, four pediatric faculty, and four community partners. So we are actually outnumbered by faculty here and do kind of the full gamut of plastic surgery. And I'm happy to talk to you more about specifics as we kind of get into all of this. And can you tell me a bit about the relationships between the integrated and the independent residents? Oh, absolutely. I think we have a great relationship here. In our model, the fourth, fifth, and sixth year integrated residents are in the same kind of group as the independent residents. So the six of us, the six senior residents, we are completely equal in the program, the independent and integrated residents. We do six two-month rotations, our fourth, fifth, and sixth year. We do three rotations at our main adult hospital. We do a breast and body rotation, a hand and extremity rotation, and a trauma rotation. We also do a children's rotation at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. It's actually a top three children's hospital in the country, and we have a huge craniofacial program there. That's one of the big draws of this program, if anyone is interested. We do a rotation in the community with the private practice aesthetic group, and we do a two-month rotation at our Westchester location, which is about 20 minutes north of our main medical campus, where we do more kind of suburban plastic surgery, a lot of breast reconstruction, body surgery. And the way our program is set up, each year you do those same two-month rotations and you repeat them each year so that you gain autonomy as you progress through the program. So I will do, for instance, the UC breast and body rotation for two months as a four, two months as a five, and two months as a six with the same attendings. And it's the same exact rotation that the independent residents do. And that way you get to work with the same attendings in kind of small increments and you get to come back the next year, having gone through all of these different rotations with a lot more surgical skills, and you kind of already know how they like to do certain operations, and it allows you to really grow as a surgeon. And I've, I've actually been very impressed with kind of watching residents go through the program through the years, how much they can really grow and how much more autonomy they can have in the OR because they get to know all the attendings and kind of how everything goes and repeat the same thing. Some programs will do it a little differently. They'll do six months in a row, but you may only do it one time as a fourth year or something, and that's it. That's the only exposure you get which is still fine, but it's I, I like kind of doing it in small chunks and repeating it. It forces me to keep thinking about different types of cases each year, kind of keeps things fresh. And can you break down the plastics experience in the first three years? Absolutely. I think our juniors have it great here as somebody that has recently finished all of their junior years. We spend about half of our time on plastics and half of our time off service the first three years. Um, I actually just looked, I think we do 13 four-week rotations as juniors. And I think you spend five of them on plastic surgery as an intern, six of them as a second year, and seven of them as a third year. So lots and lots of plastic surgery. We do about 10 months of general surgery total. 
And that's a common question. And it's actually spread out over the first three years. And that's actually per our request. For instance, your third year, you actually only do two general surgery rotations. You do transplant and vascular as senior residents, which is actually awesome. We do not rotate through the transplant surgery service here as an intern, which is a kind of notoriously tough rotation all over the country. We just come in as seniors and get to do all of the operations, which is awesome. So it's a little hard when you're starting to manage some of the floor stuff and to manage the interns, but you know, you get to do kidney transplants and fistulas and grafts and get to practice actually suturing in the OR, which is an awesome, awesome surgical experience versus just kind of holding the pager as an intern. And I don't think you gain as much that is applicable to what we're going to do kind of forever. But yeah, it's it's great. I think our interns and our juniors are very happy. I loved my training. I was very skeptical of general surgery. I, I did not dual apply general surgery, and I was a little worried about it when I came here. But I actually loved all my rotations, and I think that they have been kind of crafted in a way that you get the the most bang for your buck. You know, you're not doing these kind of crappy scut rotations that you do in other places, and most of the rotations we do are heavily operative, and you actually learn how to be a surgeon. And are there any fellows at any of your sites? There is one craniofacial fellow at Children's Hospital. We do not have any fellows on the adult side of the street, which I actually think is a draw of this program as a resident. For instance, when we do deep flaps, it's just two of the senior residents and two of the attendings. And our breast and body resident does the abdomen, and usually the extremity resident does the chest. That's how we trade, and that way somebody's always you know, getting to do a different part of the operation. And actually, having the fellow at Children's is great. Like I said, we have four full-time craniofacial faculty, and it's a huge children's hospital. We do a lot of, you know, cleft lip, cleft palate, cranial vault stuff that a lot of programs do. But because of the type of hospital it is, we also do a lot more kind of niche plastic surgery. And we do a lot of microtia repair, brachial plexus injuries, a lot of oncologic reconstruction for really kind of complicated problems that I don't think necessarily every children's hospital has exposure to. So I personally like having them around. There's definitely plenty to go around, and I don't feel like they're stealing cases from us. It's just nice to have somebody else to have help kind of offload stuff over there. And can you tell me about the research experience? Sure. We do not have a dedicated research year here or a dedicated research month. We're kind of just expected to do it in small groups. I mean, we definitely have time to do it, and I usually like to work with one or two residents on individual projects and try and push things through in whatever I'm interested in. If you get an abstract accepted to any kind of national meeting, the department covers any costs associated with traveling there. It's a little bit on hold with COVID right now, but for instance, I've personally been to um, Ann Arbor, Michigan. I went to Las Vegas. I went to San Diego, presented stuff kind of all over the country at all of the major meetings, kind of on their dime. And, you know, they pay for the hotel, they pay for the conference registration. Usually they take us out to dinner. They're very, very supportive, but we do not have protected specific years or months. And I know some programs have that. And what kind of support's available more so like while you're working on your research? So things like stats or research coordinators? I would say at the children's hospital, we have more support. It's just the the hospital is so big and the department is so well funded. There's a, there's more resources available over there. There is a statistician we have available to us through the general surgery department. A lot of us do our own stats. I'm not going to lie, you know, for retrospective stuff, a lot of us have done enough research over the years that, you know, we can fumble our way through some T-tests and ANOVAs to, you know, get some passable data. But we don't really have a basic science research lab. Some programs I know do have that. You could definitely at the Children's Hospital make that happen if that's something you're really interested in. It would just take, I think, a lot of runt work. And I'm not personally interested in doing basic science research, so I have not pursued that. I'm a simple clinical researcher. 
And can you tell me a bit about what call is like across the years? Absolutely. So the way our call is split, when you are on call, you take call at both the adult and the children's hospital. They are directly across the street from each other. I timed it. It takes four and a half minutes to walk between the emergency departments. Unfortunately, they are not connected via a tunnel. There's about a 50-yard gap you have to clear. So in the middle of the winter, that's a little tough. At the adult hospital, we take face call every odd day and hand call every even day. So we're always on something back and forth. And then at the children's hospital, we are always on face call every single day of the year. And we are on hand call 50-50, but it's split with ortho and it's completely random. So some days we're on three days in a row and then we're off two days and then we're on five days. It's a little crazy, uh, but it's just because the departments are so big over there. That's how it works. As a junior resident, take in-house call, 12-hour shifts, very rarely 24s on the weekend. And then as a senior, I actually think one of the big, (laughs) one of the really nice things about this program, we actually take a second call. And because there are six seniors, we split up the whole year. So you're on call about one day a week and about every sixth weekend. So I'm off five out of six weekends of the year as a senior, which is like unbelievable. When you're on call, it's tough because you're on call from Friday night until Monday morning. And, you know, depending how things go, it can be a little tough. But I think, you know, having five out of six weekends off, this is my first year having this experience. I can spend more time with my wife. I can prepare for cases for the week. I can live a kind of pseudo normal life, which I have kind of given up for many, many years. And it's awesome. And I really think it adds to my training. And that's a great example of even though we don't have protected research time, I do a lot of research on the weekends because I'm off a lot of them. So even though it's not technically protected, it's very easy to sit down on my computer for a couple hours and be very productive without kind of the hospital looming in the background and my pager kind of always on. And what's the mid-level support like? We have three nurse practitioners at the adult hospital and three at the children's hospital. At the adult hospital, they do not round with us, but they run a a clinic that we send all kinds of people to. They help run the burn unit, which is a unit that the junior residents go through. The senior residents do not cover the burn unit in this program, but they help a lot up there. So you have a lot of clinical support from the MPs as a junior when you're helping in the burn unit. Across the street at the children's hospital, the MPs do round. They help write notes. They help do discharges. They help take out drains. They're a lot more hands-on clinically in kind of the day-to-day running of the service over there. And are there any opportunities for electives? I would say the only electives that you, you can do that are kind of on hold right now are kind of global electives. Dr. Schwenker, our program director at the Children's Hospital, has been going to Honduras for over 30 years. Her dad was a big orthopedic surgeon. She used to go with him, and now she goes down there and has kind of continued his legacy. It's a pretty cool experience. The ORs there actually have two OR tables set up at an L, so you get to operate independently on one while she stands next to you and operates on another one, so you guys can kind of go back and forth on different cases, which is pretty awesome. Like I said, it's on hold for COVID right now, but I personally, that's kind of on my bucket list, assuming we get to travel before I graduate. I'd love to go with her. And then Dr. Dale, our kind of head microsurgeon here at the university, goes to Malawi every year and does burn reconstruction. She's also director of our burn unit and has been doing burn surgery for a long time and loves to go to Africa and help some of the kids, especially who have been burned for a long time and have bad contractures, help do releases. It's very life-changing for them. And there was actually talk about making that an official part of our rotation as like a five or a six, and then COVID happened and it's a little bit on hold. But we're hopeful once this kind of passes, we can kind of make that a standing part of the, the rotations here. What years do residents usually go on those trips and how long do they go for? Most residents go their fifth or sixth year. You have to be pretty senior because especially a lot of the, the opportunities you operate fairly independently and it isn't really feasible, especially with the way even just the junior kind of call schedule works and stuff for you to travel for a long period of time. 
And I'd say most residents go for a week or two. It depends how far you're traveling. The Honduras trip is actually pretty nice. It's pretty quick to get there and back. And I think most people go, I think Liz, our old chief, went for about 10 days down there. And she had a great experience and ranted and raved about it for her entire residency. I don't think any resident that has gone has regretted it. Probably about half of us go. It's, it's just 100% up to you. And, you know, some people have families and don't want to go. Or some people are very global health oriented and want to go everywhere. It's 100% up to you. And it's, it's a pretty amazing opportunity that you have. And so I think you mentioned you spend about six months across the four, five, and six years on cosmetic rotation. Can you tell me a little bit more about that experience? And is there like an opportunity for senior residents to book their own cases as well? Absolutely. So in full transparency, I'm doing my first cosmetic rotation starting in about two weeks. So this is a little bit (laughs) kind of what I've heard through the grapevine. But our official aesthetic rotation happens at uh, kind of two primary sites. There's a doctor, Dr. Curtis Martin, who's in the community, who's an old graduate of the program, graduated like 20 years ago, who runs a very standard private practice, does, you know, facelifts and breast and body and kind of everything that comes in the door. And you kind of learn how to run a practice from him. And then there's two partners at, it's called Good Samaritan Hospital, which is kind of a smaller community hospital about two miles away. We work with Dr. Chris Umrick, who's a rhinoplasty specialist and do a lot of rhinoplasty with them. Kind of rhinoplasty Friday is a standing thing on the aesthetic rotation. And then Dr. Ben Wynn, one of our old graduates, works over there, and he does breast, body, head to toe, all kinds of stuff. And you get to kind of make your own schedule week to week, which is great. So you can kind of cherry pick all the best cases from everyone all week. We also run a senior resident cosmetic clinic. It's every Friday. It's usually primarily run by the chiefs, but the the fours and the fives also help out. And that way you can get to kind of learn how the clinic works. It's every Friday morning. We see anywhere from probably five to 10 patients, and we usually book one to two operations each clinic. And we do those operations on Wednesdays in the main hospital. We do a lot of breast and body. It's a lot more common in kind of the resident cosmetic clinics to do things like that. But recently, I mean, we've done three facelifts in the last two months at a cosmetic clinic, which is pretty good. Facial cosmetic surgery is a tough thing to book through the resident cosmetic clinic. But yeah, we book our own cases. You pre-op them, book them for surgery, do the operation, see them post-op hold their hand when they have little wound breakdown problems, answer phone calls in the middle of the night when they think their drain isn't working and kind of see them through the whole process. And it has been, this is my first year working and I think it's been really valuable just even getting used to taking pictures, standard pictures in clinic, doing your own markings, kind of planning exactly what you're going to need in the operating room and kind of how to sequence things if you're doing multiple surgeries at the same time. I think it's been really valuable and will definitely add to my training. And for the chief's Do they attend the clinic just when they're on their two cosmetic months, or does it go kind of throughout the year? The cosmetic clinic goes every week, all year, and usually the chiefs, if they're on the university service, because it's it's on the same campus, they usually cover it, and the chiefs, are they split the university service. So six months a year, one is there, and the other six months, the other one is there. So there's always a chief around to help run that clinic, and then the fours and the fives can come over and help to kind of learn how things work and to kind of get their feet wet before their chiefs and, like, total independent charge of the clinic. And is there any exposure to gender affirmation surgery? We do top half surgery here, both male to female and female to male. We do not do bottom half surgery at this program. There was some talk of getting a program started, but I think it'll be probably five years or so before anything is is actually set in stone. It's, it's a pretty big undertaking to start these things. So lots and lots of top half surgery here, but no bottom half. Can residents moonlight? Unfortunately, residents cannot moonlight in this program. 
they haven't been able to for my whole residency. They're just concerned that we're all going to completely violate duty hours. So yeah, no moonlighting in this program. And are there any fun perks about your program you'd like to share? We have stipend support in this program. They buy you a pair of loops your intern year, which is great. Your first, second, and third year, you get $500 a year to spend on essentially anything you want in plastic surgery. And then your fourth, fifth, and sixth year, you actually get $2,000 a year, which is a lot. So a lot of us buy an additional pair of loops. I bought the Nelligan series of books this year to have as kind of my main reference on my desk. People buy courses. People used to take like the Duke Flap course and would spend the money. I mean, they really do, as long as it's academic, they will cover absolutely anything that you're interested in. And it's a lot of money, especially your fourth, fifth, and sixth year. You can do a lot with $2,000. It's pretty amazing, actually. And I think that's a big perk. One of the old chairs who's retired from our program uh, left a large sum of money that has been used to kind of fund these stipends for a long time. Other perks, we don't have a meal plan here. You don't get free food in the cafeteria, but we have these uh, fridges we lovingly call the silver fridges that are stocked with like sandwiches and cold cuts and Gatorades and stuff that are free to the residents that get stocked like once or twice a day. They also stock this little candy bowl next to them with Reese's. That's like the hot commodity here. If you can get like a Reese's, you must have been there like right after they stock the fridge. And otherwise, I think kind of small things that come up, parking is included here. That's actually not necessarily the case at every residency and not something people realize. And in general, Cincinnati's a pretty pretty livable city. Your money goes far here, but those are kind of I'd say the main perks of the program. And what area of plastic surgery would you say residents come out with the strongest experience in? That's a good question. I I think one of the strengths of our program, to be quite honest, is that you get a very broad amount of training here. When I was a medical student, I found that a lot of programs had one or two things that they were really known for, and they had a lot of areas of weakness. Not necessarily weakness, just they didn't have as much exposure. I think one of the the strengths here is we we truly do the entire spectrum of plastic surgery. And the way our our two-month rotations are set up is, you know, I spend two months doing deep flaps and breast reductions. I spend two months doing this complex craniofacial stuff. I spent two months doing hand surgery. What I was looking for when I was a medical student looking at programs is I wanted to come out being well-rounded because, honestly, when I was a medical student, I had no idea what I wanted to do within plastic surgery. And I think one of the strengths here is that you can really do whatever you want. Our graduates, about 50% of them do fellowship and about 50% of them uh, go into private practice. Of those that do fellowships, we've had people do uh, microsurgery fellowships. Most recently, I'm at Stanford and MD Anderson. We've had residents do craniofacial fellowships. I'm at Stanford and NYU. Uh, we've had a couple do hand fellowships, one at Michigan, one in Washington and Seattle. I mean, we send people to very competitive fellowships all over the country, even though, you know, we're a Midwestern program that takes one integrated and one independent person a year. And I think that's an important thing for all students that are interested to know is that, you know, no matter the size of the program, you can still go to good fellowships, you can go into private practice, you can do a lot no matter where you train. And that's definitely, you know, there's no exception here. You can do whatever you want with the training you get here. And how would you improve your program? What we're looking for right now, we're actually looking to hire another microsurgeon on faculty. We do one deep a week currently, and usually, you know, one or two other free flaps, whatever kind of comes in trauma or oncology. We have so many deeps kind of in the pipeline that it's becoming kind of overbearing on our primary deep surgeon. And we're looking for another person to join to help expand the deep program and to just kind of offload. I mean, we're a level one trauma center. There's always stuff coming in. There's always people with lower extremity wounds or big cancers getting resected. And 
we're looking for someone in the next year or so to come and join and help kind of expand the program. And I think they'd have a lot of clinical support here. So that's kind of what we're looking for. I don't think it's a weakness in our program. We do plenty of micro here, but I think we have even more to do. And I think having more people around to help will, you know, do nothing but improve the program. Now, I'd like to transition a bit and hear about your program leadership. So your PD and your chief. Absolutely. The chair of the department here is uh, John Kitzmiller. He is truly probably my greatest role model and actually, in a lot of ways, the reason I stayed in Cincinnati. He's a very down-to-earth guy and takes mentorship very seriously. He is very easygoing never angry. I know, you know, people worry about surgical chairs being kind of aggressive or kind of outdated in some other ways, but he is, he is truly a, an advocate for you. And I, I wanted to go somewhere where the chair was, you know, behind me 110%, was willing to make phone calls for me, would kind of go to bat for me. And I, I have nothing but good things to say. He truly is the heart and soul of this program. Our program director is Ann Schwanker. She's an attending at the Children's Hospital. She does basically everything but craniofacial surgery. So she does a lot of pediatric hand surgery and microtia and free flaps and kind of everything except cleft lip and cleft palate. She is also awesome. She, I think, listens to us and tries to make meaningful changes to the program. Anytime anyone has any problems with any rotation, she's the first one to bring it up the ladder, try and change rotations, move us around. She is really willing to kind of go to bat for us as well. It's also very approachable and easy to work with. So I think our leadership here is solid. Dr. Kitzmiller has been the chair for many, many years, and Dr. Schwenker has been the program director for at least six or seven years, I think, at this point. So they've both been doing this for a while and are pretty well established. Can you tell me about any specific times when either you or another resident brought up an issue to the leadership and how they responded? Sure. I know Sumi Almanchili, the resident who is a year above me, thought she was spending a little bit too much time in the burn unit as an intern. She wanted to spend more time seeing some more plastics cases and didn't want to, you know, get stuck doing only skin grafts. And she brought that up. And when I was an intern, magically, I spent less time in the burn unit and found myself doing a lot more kind of bread and butter plastic surgery stuff like breast reductions and paniculectomies and things as an intern. And I mean, I think that's one isolated example, but I think in general, anytime anyone has had an issue with a rotation, sometimes I know there was an old colorectal rotation that we used to do as interns that I've only kind of heard whispers of that was kind of a, a tough rotation and just kind of like intern scut work. And we don't even rotate on it at all anymore at any part of our entire residency. So I think the program has changed for the best. I feel like each year it gets better and better. And even the interns now have it better than I did. And you know, I don't foresee that changing in the future at all. And what kind of a role do residents play in department decision-making for things like residency selection or new faculty hires? For residency selection, we interview all the residents separately from the attendings. We make our own rank list and we actually all meet together. So we're in the same room with the attendings and we make one big rank list among everyone and they take our opinions very seriously. That's good advice for anyone on the trail. You know, don't neglect the resident room. They have a lot of power. And, you know, don't neglect your, your dinner, your cocktail hour. Everyone's always listening. And as far as department hires, I think we have less of a role in that. I, I think it's just the way that it, it's set up currently, especially once you get through kind of the first round of interviews. We may meet you. You may give a grand rounds or come by and meet the residents. But I don't think we have as much power as far as if they get hired or not. 
Now, can you tell me a bit more about the relationships amongst the residents? I think one of the big draws of this program is we're a very close-knit group. That was something I wanted out of residency. You know, I didn't necessarily care about how big the program was, but if it was small, I wanted all the residents to get along really well. We love to do stuff together and hang out. We used to do a lot of fitness activities together. We did some Spartan races as a group, ran a marathon. We love to go golfing together, go out on the town. I'm a big wine guy. I love to go out and eat fancy dinners with my co-residents and pick fancy wines. I think we love spending time together, and it makes going to work a joy. I really don't have any problems with any of my co-residents, and I think each year we kind of self-select for people that we like and are kind of like us and we want to hang out with, and that kind of adds to the team dynamic and kind of just strengthens it year to year. You know, that's what we're looking for every year. We're looking for someone that not only is going to work hard and be a good resident, but somebody that fits in with us and we want to hang out with. You know, we're going to spend basically every waking moment with you for six years. And we want someone that, you know, I can have a beer with after work and, you know, unwind and talk about things that are not necessarily plastic surgery. Does your program have any experience with any like international medical graduates or any more like non-traditional residents? Liz Lacks, our chief last year, was a IMG. She went to medical school in the Caribbean. In general, you know, unfortunately, we do usually kind of favor students from U.S. medical schools, but we have taken IMGs in the past who have done very well. Liz Lacks is now in private practice in Cooperstown, New York, and she started at the same time I did. She was a first-year independent when I was a new intern, and she will forever be my role model. She is an all-star, and I think she's doing really, really well now. Now, a bit more about the logistics of how residents live in Cincinnati. So do most owner rent? So 50% of the residents rent, 50% of the residents buy a house. It's 100% up to you. Kind of similarly, about 50% of the residents are single and 50% of the residents have families. A lot of the residents who have families buy houses. Cincinnati is an affordable Midwestern city. You can buy a house on your salary and live very comfortably in Cincinnati. You don't have to live in a studio apartment, kind of live in by your bootstraps a little bit. You can live in very desirable parts of town. I live in an apartment in a, a very nice suburb of Cincinnati, about five minutes north of the hospital. There's a Lululemon right outside of my apartment and a farmer's market that's there every Sunday. I like going and walking around the farmer's market and getting fresh produce. That was important to me. I wanted to have, you know, kind of nice weekends drinking coffee and kind of strolling around uh, this area. This is an area that in other parts of the country, I think would be probably cost prohibitive to most people. And where do most residents live in like relation to your clinical sites? All but one of our clinical sites is kind of in the same area. The Westchester location is about 20 minutes north of there, and you're only there about two months a year. Pretty much everyone lives within five miles of the hospital. One of our residents, his wife is an OBGYN farther north, so he kind of lives in between. About half the residents live downtown. Downtown here actually has a really cool bar scene in this area called Over the Rhine. There's about 100 bars and restaurants over kind of a 20-block area that are filled with hipsters and all these kind of different pop-up ideas. That's one of our favorite places to go out as a residency group, you know, prior to COVID. And then probably the other half of us live in kind of the affluent suburbs of the area. I live on what's called the east side of Cincinnati. And like I said, there's farmer's markets. It's very safe here. You can go on walks. It's an easy place to raise kids. And then a couple of our residents live in northern Kentucky, which is also within five miles of here. It's just across the river. 
you can get a little bit more for your money over there. And a couple of our residents that own houses chose to buy over there just so they can have a little bit more space for their families. And is it necessary to have a car? Yeah, I think you need a car in this program. For most Midwestern programs, I imagine you would. Most of the hospital sites, like I said, are very close together, but you do have to drive 15 to 20 minutes from time to time, and I don't really foresee a way to do that without a car in the city. You mentioned a couple things you already liked about Cincinnati, the affordability, you know, some things to do, and I know you've been there for quite some time. So was there anything else you wanted to add about living in Cincinnati? Cincinnati, the tri-state area, is actually a huge metropolitan area. If you count the population of kind of the little corner that we live in, it's actually the 30th largest metropolitan area in the country. We're very similar to Pittsburgh in size. We have professional sports here, Cincinnati Reds, Cincinnati Bengals, and the new FC Cincinnati professional soccer team, which has become like the bell of the town. Average attendance was like 30,000 people a game prior to COVID. I think there's a kind of thriving nightlife scene downtown, if that's what you're into, but you can also raise your family safely here. There's a zoo. We have the second largest Oktoberfest in the entire country. And there's always music festivals coming through. There's an event every year called Blink, where they actually repaint all of the murals downtown and put up interactive light shows and make the entire downtown area like an interactive art show. It's really strange to describe, but it's really, really impressive in person and usually draws over a million people to the city every year. I think there's a lot happening here. It's a big Midwestern city, and you can do a lot here. It's not in the middle of a cornfield, and I think a lot of people don't know about the city, but it's actually a pretty cool place to live. I think that's most of what I wanted to talk about today. Any final thoughts either on your program or on the process of choosing a residency? Starting with my program, I mean, I, I think I'm pretty transparent. I love my program here. This is my 13th year in Cincinnati. I joke that I'm taking over the city one year at a time. I think you can do whatever you want in this program, meaning if you're interested in microsurgery, you can make that happen in this program. If you want to be a craniofacial surgeon, we have one of the top three children's hospitals in the country here. If you want to go into private practice, you can definitely do that. And, and you're supported by the faculty no matter what you want to do, which is great. I know at some programs, there's always some worry about trying to go out and kind of make it on your own. But here, it's, it's great. Everyone is very transparent and will talk to you about kind of pros and cons of whatever you want to do. And I think residents in general are happy here. You have great quality of life. You can live where you want and kind of how you want. And you have a lot of freedom here, which I think is, for me, an important part of residency. And you still get great training and can, you know, still operate when you're done here. And then as far as choosing a residency, I love to mentor medical students. And I think a couple of things I always recommend, I always tell people to trust your gut. Before I went on my interviews, I made a list of what I thought my rank list would be. And then when I made my rank list that I actually submitted, it was completely different than what I thought it would be. I hated programs I thought I would love. I love programs I had never heard of. And honestly, in the interview, it usually takes about 10 minutes for you to feel like if you're going to, you know, just go where you feel like you're going to fit in. And I think that within 10 minutes of listening to people online or meeting them in person, you'll have a good idea of kind of your personality meshes well with the program. And then the other thing I recommend for students, more of a nitpicky thing, when you're actually submitting your application, there's a little box on like the second to last page that says hobbies and interests. Spend some time filling out that section. It's one that pretty much every resident loves to read, and it's a great way to make yourself shine. If you spend a little extra time just detailing what you like to do, it makes you seem more real on paper, and I think it's easier to offer you an interview. You seem more interesting, you seem more alive, and less like just another piece of paper that you're reviewing. And I think that it is a critical part of the application that people are so focused on the personal statement and the research 
and making sure all their letters are uploaded that they just kind of neglect this part. And I think it's a great place to really make yourself stand out. And how can interested applicants find out some more about your program? Absolutely. Our website is up to date. It's med.uc.edu is the main website for the hospital. And you can look up the plastic surgery program. You can also just Google University of Cincinnati Plastic Surgery and we're the first thing that pops up. We also have an Instagram. You can follow us or get at us at UCINCI Plastic Surgery. We update it fairly frequently and are always happy to answer questions. You can always DM us on Instagram and we'll get back to you. And you can reach me specifically if you have any questions at D-E-M-B-I-N-D-R at ucmail.uc.edu. And I'm happy to answer any questions that you have. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me today, Doug. Absolutely, Jenna. Thank you for putting this together again. And I hope we get some great interest in our program. I would love to talk to anyone that's interested. Thank you for listening to the Doctority Plastic Surgery Podcast. Never miss an episode by subscribing to our show via your favorite podcast service and following us on Instagram and Twitter. For more podcast episodes and residency information, check out our website, doctority.co. That's doctority.co. We love feedback from listeners, so please contact us through the website or through social media with your questions or suggestions. See you next time.